Hey everyone, welcome back to Make Others Successful, a podcast where we like to help you in your workplace and make you successful so that you can in turn make others successful and keep cascading that down. It's our goal to always leave you with a lot of insightful tips and tricks and thoughts around building a modern workplace. And today we have a special guest with us. He's He's been on our team, but he hasn't been on a podcast before and that is Josh. He's our resident designer here. So we wanted to dig in a little bit more into a video that he and Mike put together on our YouTube where he basically walked through an existing app that Mike had built and gave tips on how to make it better and more user-friendly. And so a lot of people liked that video and we wanted to dig more into that topic and get more time from Josh and basically just add on to all of that and keep the conversation going. So do we want to start with introductions really quick we got we got a big crowd this time i yeah. think this is maybe the biggest most people we have four on our people yeah uh, three's company four is a crowd is that yeah. what they say yeah so matt matt's here we got mike hi <laughs> and, and uh, josh we want to hear your voice yeah hi i'm josh i'm designer at bulb and uh, do some work for the state of michigan and uh, just try to make everyone's uh, life a little bit easier and uh, a little bit more delightful yeah and yeah my name is mitch uh I help with a lot of operations, but have a background in development. So I think it'll uh, lend a, a hand to this conversation. Where do we want to start? So I think the best place to start is to talk a little bit about you know what we're going to be talking about. So we're going to be talking about keeping the user in mind when you're developing solutions. And specifically, we're going to be talking about it related to low-code, no-code solutions, which can be a lot of, mean a lot of different things. Um, you know, obviously we're gonna be talking about power apps, but we, we, you know, it applies to forms. It applies to lots of different things where you're developing solutions or areas where users will interact with whatever you're developing. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what the state of the situation is today. So Mike, I know you have a lot of experience with, you know, with, with the work that you did with Josh about creating apps and then having Josh kind of help make it better. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about how Microsoft's default experience works um, and where sure. it's focused. Sure. So I, I think one of the things that if you're developing Power Apps, uh, one of the first things you'll realize is uh, Microsoft is trying to make it easy to use, first and foremost, development tool, right? A way to build apps quickly. Um, it's replacing a lot of different things, honestly, things like access apps uh, and other things, particularly when we talk about Power Apps. But it's very WYSIWYG, right? You're going to drag and drop things onto your screen, and those things are not always going to be created or built by Microsoft with the best use case or best user experience in mind. Um, and that's not to be a dig on Microsoft. It's just the reality of the situations. It, it's a canvas, right? It's blank, yep. blank place for you to play. And so inherently... It, yeah, it has thing, extra work that you need to do to make it great. Yeah. Um, one, just a key example of that is, you know, the out-of-the-box standard gallery control. If you drop that onto a Canvas app, it's got widgets built into it that allow you to, like, select the item and navigate to another screen, for example. But if you're designing that with a mobile device, mobile layout in mind, for example, out-of-the-box, the entire row is not a touchable or clickable thing. So you have to do a little bit of extra work, and that's something that we talked about a little bit in that video with Josh. Yeah, I would, I would add to that that like Microsoft has to choose one, like there's layouts, templates and stuff. Microsoft has to choose one scenario when you're dropping that on that they, that's their starting point, right? Because you can't have any option you want. It's, they can't have every different option available right. to you. So they're choosing one option. And if that option isn't the best for what your user experience should be, you need to take the next step and think about it and come up with a, a better 
or uh, or change it. You know, configure it differently, add different components, like those types of things. You, you you have to take that next step. Yeah, I think what I one of the things that I learned from Josh just in spending that time is to actually take the time and think about the user. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really easy to kind of just put something down on the page, which is easy and that sort of works. But everything that we do that doesn't involve us taking the extra step to make it more usable for the user is work that we're passing off to the user. Mm -hmm. So it might be easy for us, but if it's not easy for the user, we're basically just kicking that can down the road for them. I I love what you just said, because all of this work that we're doing, the no code, low code, the whole thing is all about now we can build apps for less money that save people time, right? And if you're not thinking along the lines that you just described, which is if I don't make it nice for the user or easier to use, a better user experience, you're just making more work for the user. Right? Yeah, you're I mean, kind it of saves, defeating your own purpose. It saves me time as the creator, but it might not save other people time as the actual user. And right. people aren't going to want to even interact with your Yeah, and that product. is the goal. So let's talk about this for a minute because I, I think we all agree that's, that is really important. I would also posit that that is incredibly difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for several different reasons. Number one, if I've got uh, I've got people who are in a mobile app, and I've got people who are on you know big nice monitors, and I got people who are on tiny laptop monitors, and I've got people who are doing admin tasks, and their goal is to enter as much data as quickly as possible, and I've got other people who use the system one time a year, and they need extra information, right? Like it is incredibly difficult to try to manage all of these needs. Josh, can you speak a little bit to how you might go about deciding what is the best persona or the best users to keep in mind when you're trying to design something? So I think that a good place to start when you're creating anything, be it power platform or custom development or even just literally anything you've ever made for anyone ever is to just think about what your end goal is and who you think is going to be using it, what you would like them to do and how you think they're going to interface with whatever it is. So first and foremost, you know, what does the app do? And then from there, who needs to do it and what device might they be doing it on? And while not every single app needs to take every single device type or every single type of user into, a, in, into consideration, you need to think about who will realistically be using that. So you need to figure out if this is a really complex software that people are going to be using at their workplace, specifically sitting at their desk, you might not need to take as many considerations for something like a mobile device. But if somebody is using this app in the field, and if you have a lot of remote workers and people that are not tethered to a desk and don't have monitors set up with their nice ergonomic chair and everything, there might be working in the field. And if that's the case, then you need to focus on mobile devices and for things like tablets and stuff like that. So you kind of just need to understand your goals as the person creating a tool, but you also need to understand your user as who's going to be using those tools. And that should all be understood before you ever you know, open up a new project with Canvas apps. I'll say this isn't a new problem no, either, no. though, right? It's been around for a long time, and that's why I feel like when application development really took off, it became a, a standard to say I have a development team and I have a design team, and they kind of work together. On, for good apps, they had both of those things that worked together in order to develop something. But with low code, it's a lot harder to make those distinctions because the 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 onus is on the person to 
develop their own app. It, the power is in their hands now, and they don't necessarily have all the resources to yeah. go through that process. And I'll say even a lot of organizations that aren't using the low-code, no-code app, um, thinking about the users and like specifically focusing on design is still relatively new, especially with uh, relatively immature organizations that haven't been building these processes for years and years and years. You know, I work with an organization that I still get pulled into projects that they didn't think they needed a designer. And then when they're halfway through the project and everything's in the red and they don't know where to go, that's when they call us and they start panicking to, to come need help. Mm -hmm. from us. But the reality of the situation is that you kind of need to start at the beginning thinking about these things. And when an organization has a dedicated designer and a dedicated developer and people that turn the business goals into like tangible to-do items, uh, that process is much smoother. But the blessing and the curse of low-code, no-code is that, you know, it's a good thing that anybody can develop apps, but at the same time, anybody can develop apps. Yeah. <laughs> and not everybody has that expertise to make something particularly usable. So you Which, kind of have to be the design team and the development team and the business analyst all at once, even though it seems like you're just opening up power apps and starting and making a thing. Well, what you really want, like in an ideal world, you have a development staff and developers who understand the desire to focus on the user first yes. and they're starting from that position and then they're using design teams to help them where they they have gaps, right? Where they go, I'm not sure what the best thing to do is here, right? But in other places where they can, they can themselves start to figure some of that out, it's like a mind shift that happens, right? From yeah. thinking about my goal is just throw everything on the page and get it, get the functionality working to, I'm going to try to think about this differently and use patterns that I know work for my organization or for my group or, for, mm -hmm. you know, that are our standards that we can use. Yeah. Um, and they work 90% of the time. And then for the 10%, you bring in a designer and you say, hey, like, I don't know about this, right? That's kind of the ideal situation. The problem is that takes a lot of time to happen. And it takes a lot of education to go on, which is part of what this is, right? Like one of our goals about this doing this podcast is to get that in people's minds so that when they're thinking about developing, they try to at least think about it, right? Whether or not they do well or not, at least think about it. At least right. start from that perspective and ask the questions. Yeah. So what, I, I think that a lot of people run into this pitfall where they usually think of design as being like what makes something pretty. When, when I say design, a lot of people just start thinking about nothing but fonts and colors and, you know, logos and posters and stuff like that. But like when you're creating a product like this, you're also designing the way that you interact with things. You're designing the experience in general. So it's not just things that are tangible like colors. It's also things like, where do we start? What's step one? How, when do we branch off for one user versus another user? And what do we present at what time to make it more digestible? Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to, to create something that's just going to like check off all of the things on your to-do list that, oh yes, this app can do everything that I want it to do. But if users can't figure it out, then it, it might as well not be able to do anything because they the users can't do it. So it actually sounds like there's a couple different areas to focus when you're designing with the user in mind. One of those areas being some of the basic principles like where, you know, button placement, yeah. right size, uh, how to use colors effectively, fonts, stuff like that, which we alluded to in, the, in those videos that we did. Um, but then the other piece that you just talked about was the user experience for the process that you're guiding the user through. What, what is the application 
trying to accomplish? What is the user trying to accomplish? Um, and thinking of, of your process in terms of how you can design it to make it optimal for the user. Exactly. So you need to design the user journey, which is the path. And then there's the user experience, which is where are things laid out? How are users interacting with these step-by-step? You know, the experience is kind of like the frame versus the UI, which is the colors and the text and stuff like that, and the button placement, which is all important, but they're all just different things that people don't often consider Mm -hmm. when they're working on. So some of the stuff um, that you could do in terms of making it better in terms of like button placement and colors and fonts and those types of things is um, look at ways to build themes for your organization in terms of apps. And there are ways to do that in power apps. It's somewhat limited, but you can do that type of thing to give your citizen developers a good starting place to work from. And so in many ways, like that's a great place to start as an organization because you can solve a lot of that. A lot of those problems take the low hanging fruit, right? And get it out of the way so that we can focus on making the journey the best. It yes. Can be. So I just recently wrote a blog actually about like the psychology of colors. And while I know I, I just mentioned that design is more than just colors, but color is actually a really important part of design and can impact a user experience and how you think about your users. So what you just mentioned there are things like creating themes. You can create colors that you use specifically for certain reasons and you have patterns that are established so things are predictable. And, you know, for the most part, you're going to be relying on neutrals uh, for your backgrounds and, you know, black or dark gray for your text. But then when do you sprinkle in the color? If you want somebody to interact with something that's like a call to action, that might be where you put in your brand color. And so your buttons that are your standard calls to action might be your brand color. And they stand out because you you aren't drowning in a sea of color. You have neutrals and then a really eye-grabbing color for your call to action. And then, you know, how do you tell somebody they're doing a good job? Well, it, it, green with check marks and thumbs up is a good place to start. And if there's a problem, you know, put a big red square in front of the, their face and an exclamation point or an X and users know immediately, oh, something went wrong here. I need mm-hmm. to address this. So establishing those sorts of like brand colors, those sorts of color standards and even things like what is success, what is a warning, what is an error, or what is just general information look like um, can all go a really long way. Yeah, and it's especially if you make a lot of things, it's predictable. So yeah, you, you don't have to pick your color. You it's just, interesting to me how much, how so much of that we can draw from the world around us, right? Stop signs are red octagons exactly. everywhere, right? And that's a reason for that is because it's, especially in the Western world, I'm not going to say that every culture everywhere sees color the same way, but particularly in Europe and North America and in Western cultures, red is urgent. Red means stop. You know, you go back to hunter gatherers, red is blood, red is meat. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's very primal the way that we react to something like red. We don't ignore it. So putting something red in the way is going to immediately tell users to stop because since they're a child, they see red on the stoplight, they stop, stop sign, they stop, you know, fire truck is red, you get out of the way. So the, the things that you want to be noticed and are important, you use red and things that are less important, but something that you might want to still highlight could be blue because blue doesn't cause that like primal anxiety that red causes Mm. and you know, there's, there's a lot of psychology behind when to use certain things. So let's talk about the result of that. Like I, if at all possible, you should be trying to choose consistency over perfection, right? So having consistency in color, having consistency in location and, and the way things feel to the user 
is really important. If you get to a screen that needs to be, you know, a little bit different here or there, think long and hard about that before you go make it very different than what it was before. Have a good reason for that. Have a justification for that. Have an understanding of why that is. Otherwise, use the standard, right? Exactly. Um, and, and that's not just between, that's not just for one app. You know, in an ideal world, you know, this is very difficult to get. Every, th every app in an organization has consistency that makes it easier to train, that makes it easier to work with and makes it by and large, even if you do it wrong, even if it's not the perfect thing, it's easier for people to understand because once they understand it one time, they understand it for all of the rest of the applications. Exactly. We really don't want to break user expectations. And especially if you have multiple experiences, it's a really good idea to lean into how you solved a problem last time to consider how you're going to solve a problem next time. So a good example, we're talking about Microsoft here is basically every Microsoft Office app has a similar layout. Yeah. You know, they've got the, the task bar up at the top. You got your file in the top left that you click on that and you see save as you see save, you see open, you see all of these print print. You know, these are things that I, if I've never opened up a, a Microsoft tool, but I have used if they came out ones, with a brand new tool. You'd know where to go. Yeah, if, if they if they come up with a brand new tool tomorrow, the first time I open it, I'll know how to save a file. I'll know how to open a file. I'll know formatting. Uh, shows formatting. Form I'll know yeah. where that should be based on my logical experience. So if I'm creating an app in one instance to, to solve any task, I can rely on those patterns the next time, assuming those patterns are effective and predictable. And you you know you don't have to think about every single thing you lay on the screen if they're similar. If I put a certain amount of space between a header, a paragraph, and a button, I could just use that same number every time. I don't need to reconsider what happens there. And I don't need to jam everything onto one page either because you're using a device. There's infinite vertical scrolling for the most part if that's the way you want to do things. Or you can just break it step by step. We don't want to overwhelm people by just yeah. putting everything at the wall at once. So that's a very interesting paradigm that you guys just brought up because in the no-code, low-code world, particularly in the power platform. If you're thinking about building power apps and you get yourself into the model-driven app world, there that paradigm exists, right? So uh, in that world, you're building your data model first and you're building your app from the model. And everything in the data model is essentially a table. And out of the box, what you get with the table is you get some basic forms and you get some basic views. And all of those views have the same command bar at the top with all of the same functions like export to Excel, change the view to something different, create a new record, yep. so on and so forth. And the forms are the same as yep. well. Um, and so that's one of the really nice things about that world is you can build your data structure and have all of those things out of the box available to the user just without doing any real work. And really the only thing you end up doing is changing permissions to hide them from certain users that don't need to see certain things. So maybe you want to not let certain users delete rows, for example. Yeah. So what's really interesting about that, Mike, is that one of the things we talked about, I, I talked about was, hey, different users have different needs, right? If you're a user that is consuming an application on a semi-regular basis, but it's not something you live in every day, doing something all the time, the user experience needs to be very different than someone who is dealing with a thousand records a month mm -hmm. in, a, in a particular solution, right? And they've already kind of created a model, you know, if you're using Dataverse, like you were talking about, that whole experience about everything's all the same, it's all the same, but it's also very, very robust, right? Like the default is you get a ton of options, right? That you can you can copy, you can export, you can 
do things like you have lots of things that you can do with that, which would be terrible, absolutely horrible for somebody who's I just need to go insert a request focus once a on, month, focused right? on a single thing. Uh, yeah. It would be it's a terrible user experience, right? But their model is okay, cool. Build a Canvas app. Right. We built this all low code. It took you, you know, three days to build the model driven app. Let's say create a Canvas app that focuses on that user experience and use the model driven app for administration and for users mm -hmm. that are doing this all the time, right? Yeah. So your your back office app, right, is, is model driven. Correct. People yeah. have access to all of the data, can do anything they need to do with it. But then you've got people, let's say they're in the field, right, and they've got a mobile device, maybe a tablet. Yep. Right. What do you give them? You give them a Canvas app that has limited function. Yep. That can do just what they need right. and can focus on that. And it's another. It's a. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing because one of the things that you can leverage with low code solutions is I, it's easy for me to create new ones. So create three apps that have different experiences for different needs. Right. Or you know create three experiences within the same app. Right. Have an advanced button. Have a like do something that you can enable users to have what's best for them and for how they're working with your data. A lot of it has to do with how much time and money and energy and mm -hmm. you know if you've got two users on the front end and two users on the back end and nobody uses it a ton, maybe you don't need two different apps, right? Maybe you just come up with something in the middle, right? If you've got thousands of users on the back on the front end and you know. 10 or 15 users on the back end, it probably makes sense to have two different experiences. Yep. Every business needs to communicate well to keep leadership, managers, and employees connected. We've gathered together strategies and tactics into the internal communication guidebook. These are the same we use when we're advising clients. Cut through the noise and improve your workplace, available to order now. You'll find that at viaworkplace.com. That's V-I-A workplace.com. Now back to our conversation. So I want to uh, maybe come up for air really quick and uh, focus on if someone is building something for the first time or they're just entering this world of low code, no code development and they're building an app for the first time, they aren't exactly sure where to put what. What sort of structure outside of a theme can we put in place maybe like timeline, like how often do they get people to test it? Like what, what sort of structure can you put around someone developing an app for the first time that maybe doesn't have the knowledge of how a design team works, how mm -hmm. agile development works, all those things. How, how do we kind of summarize that for someone that might not know? So I think kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier, one of the first things that somebody should do before they ever open up Power Apps is to, I don't know if it's on a whiteboard, if it's on a piece of paper, just write down what you want to accomplish and who all is going to use this. So when you understand those things, you start to understand like, where do we begin? So the first thing might be if there's multiple types of users, we want those users to be able to get where they need to go. So if we have multiple types of users for one experience, we might have some sort of like landing page, some sort of menu that says, I want to do this and I click here and I'm taken to this funnel or I want to do this and I am taken to a different funnel, especially with apps that have lots of possible options. You kind of want to start by steering people in the right direction. And then from there, you want to start figuring out what they need to do and how they go about doing that. So if it's something that's repeatable and if it's something that's got like a set path through it, I don't know for lack of a better word, 
um, that might be the best way to do something is to break things down into bite-sized chunks. So if you're collecting information for some sort of form, for example, you might want to consider everything that you're trying to collect and then try to logically group those things. Mm -hmm. And maybe you have a step-by-step, -step, you know, page one of five, this is step one, personal information. Step two, your goals. And so when you break things into these bite-sized chunks, people aren't overwhelmed by what's on the screen and they can accomplish their goal and then click next. And how, how do they know if it's good? How do you know if it's good is if, if, if you, Get bad feedback. Obviously, you know it's bad, but you might be able to solicit feedback from users that if it's in an organization, it's an internal app, you know, ask people how they're enjoying the experience, how easy it is or how hard it is for them to work with things. So oftentimes it's just getting feedback from users to understand if something's good. But um, if people are taking a really long time to do things or if they're confused, then they're having a bad time with the experience and there's got to be a way to, to, to solve that. So um, I, we, I've done a couple different things. Um, so number one, watching usage. So like, let's say that this is a request process, you know, I would expect there to be 50 requests a week, right? I don't have any, like we launched the new thing and we were not getting any, we got five requests, right? Why? And to answer the why I'll often actually try to engage with an end user and ask them to show me what they do, exactly. um, get on a screen share and be like, Hey, just walk me through making one of these requests, right? Or, hey, you you said there was a problem with the request. Can you like show me what you did to to this, right? Let's get let me see what you're doing because oftentimes they can't users can't articulate what's wrong. They yeah. are frustrated, or they may not even be frustrated, but they're they're doing something that you don't expect. Yeah, um, and you don't know it until you see them do it. Yeah, seeing it is is a big part of it what Josh talked about, like trying to get feedback, you know, we've used surveys to say, Hey, you know, we launched something new or, you know, we sent this out. Like how, how was the experience? What, what, what happened? Right. Is it, what, what do you think? Right. So those are some things that I've used in the past to try to gauge it after the fact. I also think it's interesting what Josh was talking about going through, I think is really common for solutions where you, you understand the process and people have spent a lot of time thinking about the process going forward. Oftentimes in our world, where you're talking about low code, no code, there's a difficult time for end users in visualizing and thinking about what it could be. They just know what they do today and they have a very difficult time following along. So oftentimes what I'll do, you know, it's low code, no code. I'll spin up a demo right? Like an example, maybe it doesn't work all the way. Maybe not all the things are there, but I'll come up with a, a demo quick and say, Hey, let's walk through that. Like I'm going to, I'm going to present it and I'll walk you through what it is and try to get feedback that way, which sometimes can help people visualize what's going on right. better because they really, you know, I'll take a perfect example. An email gets sent from one system into a shared mailbox. Somebody gets it. They look at it, take the details from that and put it into another system. And then produce a report, right? And I'm like, hey, we can automate a bunch of those things. They don't even really understand what that looks like, right? Yep. And so I'll create a little automation with a dummy email and hey, this is what it looks like. And like, you don't have to do anything anymore. Or you just get an email that says, and when, when you say that, you say, oh, you don't have to do anything anymore. It's it's done. Maybe they're getting freaked in, in this case, they got freaked out because they're like, well, then I don't know that it happened. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, then I can just send you an email letting you know notifying you that it happened, right? It's that kind of thing where they just don't, they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. I think that's why the whole like wireframing industry yeah. is such a thing. Like 
how do you create something quick, easy, so that someone can actually experience it for themselves? It doesn't have to be full fledged, yeah. but but obviously we're talking low code stuff here. So it's it's like kind of wireframing. It's wireframing plus or something. Yeah. Yep. But even in custom development applications, we always start with wireframes. Yep. Design yeah. something to get people in that mindset. Yeah, design so, a design early and test early and test often. Yep. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you've described here is basically just like the entire field of user experience yeah. research. You know, there's people whose entire job is to like collect this feedback and solicit this feedback and try to draw conclusions from it. And, um, you know, one of the disadvantages of being a small organization that's using low code, no code is you don't have a research team. Yeah. Um, and those research teams can be expensive, but, um, even just soliciting the people that you do know working on in your app is a great way to start because that that research is the, that information is worth its weight in gold. And I, I I go out of my way these days whenever somebody solicits feedback on a digital experience, I jump through hoops to give it to them because I know that if I'm having a bad time and they ask how I'm doing, like if I just ignore it and stay frustrated, I'm just going to stay frustrated. But if I give them feedback, like they're asking because they want to improve the experience. There's a chance yep. they'll and, make it better. You know, people don't always know when something's not working but and even if you don't know what the solution is as a user like nobody really expects you to know the solution but you do know the problem so i always give this example you know people back in the early 1800s or the late 1800s they wanted a faster horse that could do more work but what they were given was a car you know it's it, people don't know what the solution is they just know the problem yep mm -hmm. so one of the things that uh, i'll put put this out there and i think this is pretty this is heavy uh, and it's one of the things that I've had to learn, um, and that is the importance of humility in that process as a developer, because you get invested in the thing that you build. Yeah. And whether or not you're getting feedback from somebody who has done the research and is a designer and has that brain, or you're getting feedback from the end users, whenever you get something that's like, hey, this this isn't right, or why can't you make it do something different? Sometimes it's tough because you're invested in yeah. it. And the, the importance of humility in that process so, is, is something I think that cannot be uh, overestimated. Yeah. So to that same point, end users recognize that, and so then they hold back. Sometimes you can have you can have a couple different types of users. One user can be like they're going to just lay it out there and be aggressive and and unreasonable in some cases, mm -hmm. and not even understand if you try to explain why it has to be a certain way. Maybe there's not a way you can change it. But then you've got a whole other set of users who are like they've had a bad experience with a developer in the past. They're, they're naturally not critical, like whatever that is, mm -hmm. they don't say anything and they don't want to say anything because they don't want to hurt your feelings or whatever. It's also important not only for you to be thinking about it, but to express to the end users, our goal is to try to make it better based on what you guys need. Like we're here yeah. to deliver on what you need to make your job better, right? Yeah. Or make your scenario better. Give us feedback, please. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, so uh, one of the examples, and I don't know if we talked about it very much in our videos, Josh, but we've talked about it personally. And that is I spent a lot of hours. I don't, I don't even know how many hours I spent trying to figure out for the hoteling app, how to get a floor plan map in a situation where I could plot spaces that the user could choose from on the map mm -hmm. and that the user could actually zoom in, zoom out, scroll around on that map. And there is nothing in no code, low code, at least in the power platform right now that allows you to do what a user really wants to do, which is pinch oh yeah that that was right, frustrating and for zoom. me and trying and so, to understand that as somebody who doesn't create these power apps i'm sitting there right. looking at this map that i can't interact with and i'm like oh well can you make it pinch and zoom and right. when you say no i'm like well, what do you mean no it's a map right and you my know, realization was 
oh crap, I spent all of that time and nobody likes this. And, and, and that's just one of the shortcomings of a, of no, of no code, low code is that sometimes the answer is you just can't do it with right. what's out of the box. And we came up with a solution, which is functional. It's, yeah. it's got sliders that you can, you can slide left and right on the map. You can slide up and down on the map. And so you can kind of like get to where you want on the map and it has a zoom in and zoom out function. But like it's, functional and that you can map. do it but it's not usable you know <laughs> right. you, you turn a door handle you walk upstairs and you pinch and zoom a map yep. and if you can't pinch and zoom a map like it can't truly be usable and accessible to users who are who've been doing this since the iphone came out in 2007 you know everybody knows they see a map they touch it with two fingers they pinch they zoom right so if if, if uh microsoft is listening <laughs> let's add some better functionality add some pinch for and that. zoom please yeah, pinch and zoom pretty please so so this what you guys are talking about brings us to like what I think is the, kind of the last part of the discussion, which is we're developing in this case, we're developing in low code, no code. There are limitations. Definitely. This is the drawback to doing low code, no code, right? By doing that, you are consciously making a decision that you do not need ultimate control over the user experience, right? Yeah. And if you need something different, you probably should not be using low code, no code to do this. Right? Exactly. Um, you are going to spend way more time, as what Mike alluded to, trying to force it to work how you think you want it to work, and you still won't be successful. And right? I'll tell like, you, it will you not after, be great. After all of that time, I was still proud of myself that you figured it out. That I figured out how to do something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Which, which there's nothing wrong. Like, and to be clear, I'm not suggesting that users shouldn't take what they have and try to make it better or do the best they can, but. If the user experience, if if pinch and zoom is a requirement, you cannot live without it. This is not the solution for you. It, right? makes, me, it makes me want like a list so that people can quickly reference needs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, pinch and zoom. Another one, drag and drop. If you need a solution that needs to drag uh, in Canvas, in particular Canvas apps in particular, if I need a solution that drag and drops things around in like reorder stuff, that so, is not your solution. No. So, and, and so think, think board view. Yeah, board view. That's right. in, Canvas is just not built to do that, right? Yeah. Um, also, well, yeah, my I have my own reservations about it, but the the fact that it is all pixel based, it's canvas oh, based. Yeah. Oh man, it's not dynamic like height. Like you have to do special crazy things to yeah, special containers to to make it all dynamic and pretty and and responsive. Yeah. So that can be a little bit of a challenge too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yep. it, sometimes it feels like you're does, you're creating an app using like the old Sketch app, which is all pixel based. Well, I mean, I think technically it's vector based, but you're still Microsoft Paint. How about it's like Paint? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like you're you're designing mockups in Photoshop, like it's 2008 or something. Yeah. It it can solve a lot of problems, and not every problem needs a business analyst and a design team and doing yep. sprints in order to accomplish something. If your goal is to collect like some basic information about a user, you're creating a basic survey, you're just you're trying to accomplish something that is simple and straightforward and to the point. Power Apps is going to be a great solution for that. But if you're trying to create something that is incredibly complicated, if you're trying to create something that requires a lot of like sensitive information and you're just trying to build a, a lot of trust with your users, power apps might not be the right solution for you. That might be where you you know have your design team if you have a design team or you, you outsource that work to a, a design team or a development team or some sort of shop that does this stuff for a living because sometimes you do need people doing research and people doing wireframes and people coming up with the best solution, not just 
a solution, but the best solution. So like we'll get, I get right back down to brass tacks. I in 20 some years of doing this type of work have been asked on many occasions, many times by Microsoft directly to make their products do stuff that they should not do. Right. Mm -hmm. And knowing what those boundaries are and choosing the right thing is really important. It can save you a lot of time and a lot of money because the reality is these tools have their place and that place is huge and it's getting bigger all the time. Microsoft is making huge improvements to make this whole, all of these tools way better for all of these reasons and all of these purposes, but there are just limitations. And if you are stepping outside of that, it's just not worth it. Yeah. 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 Like for instance, we had a client come to us with a need for an intake process and we said, oh, forms can probably do this. And we, we learned that you can't do anonymous form uploads through forms. File, and I'm sure, up, fi file uploads. Yes, sorry, file uploads. And I'm sure there's a, a logistical reason behind it. But man, we, we went down that path only to discover that. And it was a huge bummer. And we had to mm. kind of work around it in many ways. Yeah, we were, and we created a workaround for the moment. But ultimately, we're going to choose a completely different uh, technology. It's another Microsoft technology. They'll be using a Power Apps portal, but a completely different technology to try to get around it because it's super important to that customer. Like this is the core of their business and they need it to be great. a great user experience and they need it to be um, something that works really, really well. So yeah. we have a workaround for the moment, but ultimately we're going to use a totally different technology so to make that happen. What was your workaround? So the workaround was to basically accept the form input and then on the back end send an email to the user asking them to go place a file in a location oh, wow. so it like it it's a link to a OneDrive one drive location, location. Yeah. so they send you the information they fill out the form we yep. shouldn't and tell josh anymore that's over he's, yeah. gonna, he's gonna rip us <laughs> and up then use the, the, you send them an email so they have to close their form they yep. have to open their email they have to open that specific message and then click the a file. link, yeah. which takes you to another place. Which, Josh, to be clear, oh man, so to be clear, what they're doing today, like without the form, is even yeah, yeah. more ridiculous. So, so, so two things I'll add, right? Like I'll, <laughs> I'll justify this a little bit because I'm having a hard time being humble right now. Uh, but first and foremost, what they're doing today is not great at all, and yeah. so this is better. We're building something at relatively low cost for them so that they can prove out that it's going to be a great system for their customer. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'll invest and make it better, a better user experience. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing to note about the form specifically in that process is if they go through the correct process from point A to point D, let's say, the first form submission is intended to get a back-end review by somebody who looks at it and says, yep, this is good. Now I need more information. Okay. And then that will trigger an email to say, hey, go fill out this form, upload these files. Um, so it's not completely as bad as you okay. characterized it, but it is definitely not <laughs> ideal. No, that, yeah. that definitely does sound better, but it's in a perfect world, ideal. in a perfect world, you should be able to just drop a file and yep. right before you click that submit button. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, anytime a user has to like break the window that they're in, we run the risk of losing them. Yep. Yeah. It's, we'll see how it goes in the future, but yeah, works for now. All right. So I think that's it. I think yeah. we covered it all. Yeah, yeah, let's wrap up. Um, Josh, really appreciate you coming in and, and hanging out with us for a little bit. It was it was fun to to chat user experience. I'm sure we will revisit the topic again in the future. So yeah, if you're listening, we'd love to to hear your feedback and any questions or comments you have on this topic that we can dig into in the future. Thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you guys soon. 
Thanks, thanks for having to, me and take, see you guys soon. I want to say a special thanks to Josh for helping make us successful. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so you'll always be up to date on the most recent episodes. This podcast is hosted by the team members of Bulb Digital. And special thanks to Eric Vienemann for our music tracks and producing this episode. If you have any questions for us, head to makeothersuccessful.com and you can get in touch with us there. You'll also find a lot of blogs and videos and content that will help you modernize your workplace and get the most out of Office 365. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.